it's Lisa of Two Sober Chicks with Julie and Lisa. Yeah, thanks for joining us and welcome to another edition of our series on AA Speakers. Today's guest is special. It's my grand sponsor, visiting us from her home group, Celebrate the Morning in Florida. Hi, I'm an alcoholic and my name is Norma. And I got to tell you, the first thing I, I think of when I look at this, the date on my screen is I couldn't figure out why I was trying to put my birth year. And now I understand. That's my month of my birth year, not my date of sobriety. So I apologize for that. <laughs> uh, the date of my last week was actually February 9th, 1986. Yeah, I know. Kind of screwy in this head of mine. But, you know. Uh, so I got sober back when um, a lot of people were still drinking, man. Um, but unlike them, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't do it. I was the youngest of four kids uh, in a military family. My father is a, a Filipino um, at a time when the, he was given the choice, he was going to join the, um, the kitchen or the laundry. So he put the kitchen. But at home, he was a bartender. He would be he would play bartender at home. And my sister didn't like to drink. So she'd pass her drinks off to me and I would drink the drink. So that way nobody gets in trouble. Right. Um, and I'd love to tell you I'm an alcoholic because of that. But that's not why I'm an alcoholic. And I love to tell you I'm an alcoholic because it's the fault of the dysfunctional family in which I, I found myself. But that's not true either. Because, you see, I have siblings from the same family that don't even like alcohol. So I can't blame my alcoholism on that. I can only deal with the wreckage of that. What I can tell you is that I have this peculiar obsession of mind coupled with this craving in my body that, that, that says... When I drink alcohol, that there that the world does not have enough for me to drink. I cannot tell you like a lot of people can the date of my first drink. I really can't because I mean I was drinking long time before you know. I mean I'm one of these kids that when the Godfather came out to the movie, you know the the movie theaters or and the drive-ins. I saw the Godfather in the drive-in. Now I was born in '67. The Godfather came out in '71. So you do the math about when I saw that movie. So drinking and things like that were kind of normal when I was growing up. Because, you know, that's what we did. It was no big deal. That's what we did. Um, and I thought everybody, I was laughing about this the other day with somebody. I thought everybody was, when they talked, said, man, I'll lay you even money on that. Oh, no, five to ten, I, 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 need, I need eight to one odds on that one. I thought everybody talked like that because that's how we talked in my family, you know? And I thought that everybody had a mother whose eyes turned to stone when she got mad and you could just see the, the 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 physical change in her i thought that was everybody's mom because that was my mom and when i started finding out these things didn't happen in everybody's family at a young age i, I started feeling like there's something different about my family and i started feeling like i'd always felt because see as as the smallest kid the youngest kid in the family i was also very sick i spent the first couple years of my life in and out of the hospital in and out of oxygen tents and um, I ended up with a surgery as well. And I, I can remember at a young age, my mom telling me, you know, Norma, the other kids are jealous of you because of how much time I had to give you when you were sick. So, wow, I always felt like I had to make something up to the other kids. Like somehow I need to get them to accept me. I'm going to, I'm going to work really hard. And you know what? They didn't want me to hang around with them. Now, except for my sister, I'm going to tell you, my sister was entirely different. My sister Loved to try to make me feel included. She would take me and my friends when we lived in Key West to the beach. And when she would get us lunch, she wouldn't get just me lunch or just her lunch. She would get lunch for everybody that we took. So my sister really made me feel like 
made me feel different until she didn't. Because, see, my family, I, I don't know if this happens in everybody's family. I can only tell you what happens in mine. People get kicked in and out of my family with alarming regularity. You know, I mean, it's like, it's almost like we get set our watch and our calendars. Okay, it's this time, it's this day. Okay, you're, it's your turn. Because my sister got kicked out of the family. But when I got home from school, that's not what I was told. I was told my sister left and didn't even bother telling me goodbye. That's what I was told. I can remember being on the back porch with my brother who's now passed away, talking about when my parents were fighting, you know, he, he said he's going to live with mom. And I'm thinking I'm going to end up on the streets because death's not even going to know if I'm there or not. So I felt alone. And it felt like nobody wanted me. So I built this facade of being tough and being, being, you know, you can't bully me because I'm going to beat you into the ground or, you know, and, and, and that's how I handled things. And I thought that when I got attacked when I was in ninth grade, the dude almost raped me, that I didn't have to deal with that because I handled it. He didn't rape me because I thought fast. I found out years later in my sobriety that I never handled that, that it comes up, that I can't sit in the, uh, uh, and watch it, watch it on TV. I, I, Law and Order SVU is like a no-go for me. If, if my wife wants to watch that, she has to go somewhere else in the house, not, not around me. I can't watch it because I, become, I, I just become crazy. You know? um, and I found out something, too. See, my, my parents, they were getting together, breaking up, getting together, breaking up. So when I was in 11th, going into 11th grade, we moved back to Jacksonville. My mom had gallbladder surgery. She was out of the hospital for gallbladder surgery. And it was November. And I could remember her with a pill bottle in her hand. And my mom has a history of trying to kill herself. Okay, it's, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, did you change your shoes today? Did mom try to kill herself today? You know, that kind of thing. But I could remember her confronting me with this pill bottle in her hand, saying, ask me, why didn't I? Why didn't I tell her about the affair that my dad had with her best friend? And I can remember looking at her like stunned, like, what? What? But that night, that night, see, the reason I'm talking about this is that night, I, this is the night that I found out exactly what alcohol could do for me. It could obliterate any kind of feeling that I had. I didn't want to be here anymore, and alcohol took me away. I didn't drink because it got me high, got me to that nice bubbly place where I could talk to people. Screw talking to people. I don't want to talk to people. I just don't want to feel anything. I don't want to be here. And alcohol took me there. And so I started, when I came home, evidently, you know, my mom thought I was in such a great mood. And my sister was like, uh, yeah, sure she is. Because <laughs> my sister was moving back. She moved back at home at that time because she'd had a baby. Um, and I can remember that that um, in 11th grade, that particular um, holiday stretch for Christmas, one of my teachers, you know, she she gave me this challenge about staying sober. You know, don't 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 drink during this. And I was like, oh, sure, whatever. So I, I'm taking a drink. I'm working, whatever. I'm doing whatever. And I went to this New Year's Eve party, and I always blamed it on the drink. But I can't tell you. I realized today I cannot tell you how many drinks I had at that party. All I can tell you is the aftermath. The aftermath is is they dumped me off, me and my car off at my my house, and then when they got me in the the um. The house evidently my sister said i couldn't stop throwing up and i ended up in an intensive care unit with i woke up with leather restraints on my wrist and my ankles because evidently i had been so so crazy and trying to trying to beat everybody up and i was in a navy hospital and i was told that i could not i would not be released from this hospital 
unless I decided to go to counseling. So I said, fine, fine, I'll go to counseling. And my mom was really seeing a counselor. So she went to that counselor. And when I talked to that counselor, I realized this counselor has no idea. I can't talk to him about alcohol. He really doesn't know. And how did I know that? He said, well, how much do you drink? I said, I could drink a case and not feel it because by this time I could drink a case and it did absolutely nothing for me. And he said, bullshit. And I was like, oh, I can't talk to you. You don't understand. You have no idea how much it takes to get me loaded. But the day that I knew it was alcoholic was entirely different. See, I was told when I come home from school, my dad was on the couch and I said, what's wrong? Because I could tell something was wrong. And he told me my nephew, I nicknamed him Trip because he was, he was the third of his name. So I, I nicknamed him Trip. And um, he said, Trip's dead. And he left. And I was in the house by myself. And I don't know what to do with this. I don't know where to go. So I go sit behind work and I do my 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 uh, homework. And I convince myself that my father's lying. He's got to be lying about this. What what kind of person does this? He's got to be lying. Well, once I get to work, evidently my mom called work and he wasn't lying. She told my managers it was true. And so my mom asked me, you know, normally, you know, they said it's okay if you come home. It's okay, I'll work. What am I, what, what I need to come home? Do you need me home? No, okay, I'll work. And that night I made up my mind, I'm not going to take a drink. I'm not going to do it because my sister needs me. The mother of that child, she needs me and I need to be there. And she is the one who pulled me out of an abandoned house two or four o'clock in the morning. She's the one who had to listen to me 30, 45 minutes down the road, driving my car about, you know, whatever, whatever drunks talk about when they're in a blackout, feeling sorry for themselves. She's the one who had to hear that. That was the day that I knew that I was an alcoholic. That was the day that I knew that I didn't have a choice about staying stopped anymore. So I, I'm, I'm in high school. I haven't heard about Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know about Alcoholics Anonymous. All I know about an alcoholic is what my mother would tell me as she introduced me to certain walls in the house. Is that my, um, my uncle, my, my great uncle was an alcoholic because, you know, he went through this county. The, he should have went to this county to take um, her brother to the hospital. But instead he went through this county because that county was dry. And he ended up going over the bridge in St. Augustine and, and my, uh, who would have been my uncle died and my, um, my great uncle lived and he was you know, eight years old, the boy, when it happened. That's all that I knew about alcoholic. So evidently I'm gonna be a child killer is kind of what I took out of that. And so then I figured somehow in my distorted mind, God killed, my nephew, because I'm an alcoholic. That's kind of how things go. Because, you know, as alcoholics, we are the center of our own universe, right? We make, I mean, you know, the world will live and die depending on us. And and that's kind of how things were going on in there. And so I, I tried to, I tried to start, get back into sports. Well, that didn't really work because the place I was working closed down. So now I'm told I got to quit because I got to make a payment on that car. I tried changing jobs. I tried working at, a, I'd been working in restaurants. I went to work at a hardware store. And I'm going to tell you right now, I was bored out of my school. These people didn't talk like I talked. They didn't think like I thought. They were really boring. I couldn't relate to them. I ended back in restaurants. And restaurants are not why I drank. That's just, that's what I, that, those are the kind of people I understood. But um, I tried to change my friends. And oh my God, I can remember senior prom. Senior prom is like graduation. When is this shit ever going to stop so I can get drunk? I really need to get away from this. I can remember um, the, when I moved out of my mother's house, that before I, I spent the night at somebody's house because I was too drunk to drive home. So she had my, my grandfather at seven o'clock in the morning, taken down the wall between my room 
and the um, the living room. So I, I got a clear message: don't come back. That was <laughs> I picked that message up pretty good. Um, but the day that I stopped drinking was February 9th, two years to the day that I lost my nephew. I, I was doing laundry at my mom's house. I got one of those big gulp things of vodka. You know, I'm already, I'm, I mean, I'm smashed. I have no idea how I never got DUIs. I have no idea how I never ended up in wrecks. And I'm not going to say God was looking out for me. I'm just going to say that sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. But what I can tell you is that I got to work and my, my sister-in-law, my poor sister-in-law is my boss. She's she's sending me home. I don't know, but she's deliberating her mind. You know, that normally either has to do something about her drinking or normally has to go because this this can't go. She can't watch this. I have no idea that's going on. I just know I got sent home. And I can remember the, the nightmare that I had when I was coming to. And it was that I'm standing in the middle of the road and there's, you know, all this traffic, cars, trucks, whatever coming. And they're mowing down the people that I love and care about, right? But when I try to jump in front of traffic, traffic avoids me. So again, I'm going to be alone again, all by myself. And, you know, and that's how I felt all the time. I just, I mean, I could be in the middle of the crowd, thousands of people, but there was only me. I could be in a room, I could be in a room where people are trying to celebrate my birthday and, and, and I feel so alone. I'm ashamed and embarrassed because they're trying to celebrate me. Why are you doing this? Don't you know who I am? I'm a horrible person. This is all the stuff that goes on in my mind as an alcoholic, you know? And so I don't know what my mom said when she came over to my trailer that day. All I remember is that um, I came over to, that is that I reached in my pocket and I gave her my fake ID and I said, mom, I really need help. Please help me get help. I, I, I need help. And my sister-in-law's sister worked for NADSAP on base, which is a Navy um, alcohol drug. I don't know. It's their, their, their program they had putting you know sailors through this, trying to dry them up before they went to treatment. So they go around the room and everybody come up with their 1500 because you, you got, I don't have to tell you guys, you know, the excuses we have. So they come up with all these excuses about, you know, people, oh, they set me up. They set me up, you know, kind of crap. Oh, I wasn't really doing drugs. It was just kind of looked that way on my pee. Don't worry about it. And when it got to me, I'm the only civilian in the room besides the instructor. And I could say the only thing that was true for me. That I'm here because I'm an alcoholic and they said they'd get me help. And I said that every day before I went to treatment. Because I went to that room every day. And I have no long, I have no idea how long I went. I can tell you when I went to my first AA meeting, though. It was on a Wednesday night. It was at the Westside Club in Jacksonville, Florida. And a guy that um, the, my sister-in-law's sister was dating was the one taking me there. He was kind of slipping in and out of the program. Thank, thank God for him. Thank God for him. Because he did introduce me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was terrified that first meeting. I don't mind telling you guys. Because it was a step speaker meeting. And what step were they on? a god step <laughs> that's all i can tell you it's a god step because i felt like i was like oh my god they're sending me to church i'm never gonna make it <laughs> but turns out when they tried to get me to the the treatment center on base it was too long of a wait and i told them i can't wait three months i can't, I'll, I'll be good if i last a week out here so then they want to send me to st vincent's where my mom went for her psychiatric care for her latest um attempt and my, my aunt also worked there. And I said, no, no, you, you can't send me there. You don't know. You don't understand what's going to happen. My mom's going to come. Well, we're going to fight and I'm going to leave. And, and Gloria, she was so firm. She says, no, 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 no. You don't know. You don't understand. It's a locked unit. I said, no, Gloria, you don't understand. If I can get in, I can get out. It's just that simple. And in Jacksonville, I, I, I can get to a, a telephone because we didn't have cell phones. I can get to a pay phone and I can call somebody, you know, 
and 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 you and I'll never I'll never get sober. This will I'll, I'll never stop drinking. This will just go on forever. You see, I was never afraid of dying. I was afraid of living like that because I was at that jumping off place they talk about that you can't imagine life with alcohol or without alcohol. So she got a hold of somebody in Daytona. And I went to treatment in Daytona and, and God, God blessed the man who came and got me because you know what he did is that everybody at the treatment center, when I first got to the unit, they were all at Blue Springs, you know, have it a, have it a day. He said, everybody else is Blue Springs, you're not. And he handed me the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, you, you are going to read this from cover to cover today. And you know what I did? And I will never forget when I got, when I'm reading the book and I got to the part of the book where it says, you know, if you don't think you're alcoholic, go out and try again. I'm like, oh, look, the book is telling me. And then I, I read a little bit more and said, you know, a good case of the jitters will surely change your mind. Oh, screw it, man. They know me. So I couldn't relate in the book when people, and I couldn't relate in meetings when I heard people talk about, oh, man, you know, I bankrupted my family. I, I crashed our car, our vehicle. I lost my family. I got a divorce. Because, man, I turned 19, 19 years old in treatment. But I'm going to tell you, when people would talk about the pitiful, and incomprehensible demoralizations that page 32 talked about. I paid my dues. Pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I knew what that felt like. I understood that. I understood not wanting to be me, not wanting to have to look in the mirror and see me. I didn't want even want to look in mirrors. I got that when people talked about that. When people talked about Man, I tried to do this today, and that voice said, I understood that because I had a million voices in my head yelling at me, telling me that everybody's after me or onto me or lying to me or wanting out to get me. And they told me when I left treatment, they said, You got to get a sponsor and you got to go to meetings. You need to make 90 meetings in 90 days. Fine, I'm going to ignite. You know, at that point, if you told me to jump off the Buckman Bridge in Jacksonville, I would have jumped off the Buckman Bridge. So I didn't know what I wanted because, you know, when they tell you, Find a sponsor who has what you want. What? <laughs> I mean, what does that even mean to me? I'm like, I have no brain. But there was a lady, I'll never forget. It was a Tuesday night, man. And she was laughing and I could feel, I felt that was a real laugh. And she smiled and that was a real smile. And you know what? That lady became my sponsor, Ann Caldwell. Yes, she did. Because I knew that's what I wanted. I wanted to laugh. I wanted to smile. I wanted to feel like that. Because I hadn't felt like that. I don't know if I ever felt like that, honestly. But I wanted that feeling. So that lady challenged me one of the, um, as she's taking me through the steps, she, I can remember as we're talking about the fourth, fifth, you know, fourth through nine steps. And she said, you know, and we're talking about it. She's, the, the word, she put it to me like this. Norma, sometimes you just have to be willing to let the wind Stand still and let the wind blow right through you. And I remember the first time I heard that, she terrified me with that. Because I was like, there's nothing inside of me. I mean, it's a big empty hole where there should be a Norma. But I, I understand it today. Because I have to let the wind blow all that crap out so I have some room for higher power. You know, because I've, I filled myself with not just alcohol, but all my ism. And, and so when I get rid of the symptom of the disease, when I put the bottle down, 
I have to deal with the rest of it. Because steps one through 12, alcohol is only mentioned two times. First and 12th, that's it. The rest of it all deal with our isms. My isms. I, I can remember the first time I read, um, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I still chuckle because I was like, how can they restore me to something I never was? How was that going to happen? And so Anne made it simple for me. She said, Norma, they're just talking about you're not going to take another drink, okay? Just stick with that. Oh, okay, okay, okay. All right, I can go with that. And then I remember with the third step, I, I you know, I, I, I kind of do that mental masturbation that we all do about, oh, God, I want to give it to God, but no, I don't. Oh, what is God? Who is God? Ah, ah. And I remember hearing a lady talk about the third step and talking about, you know, it's real simple when you read it in the dictionary, your willpower is your want power. Well, I do want God to take this from me. I do want somebody to take this crap from me. So that made it simple for me. Because I want to turn my want power over to God. Because evidently, my want power gets me in trouble. My want power wants me to go out and do crazy crap. You know, my want power wants me to drive my Mustang over a, a, a concrete dip to see if I can do it like they do on Dukes of Hazard. Guess what? I end up with a broken windshield. Ooh. That's what kind of crazy stuff my want power does. And yeah, I really did do that without drinking. I mean, I was in my drinking days, but yeah, that. So my want power is very important. I got I have to align that with this other power that I want to take this stuff from me. And, you know, with my, my fourth step, I can remember the same lady when she was, because I was working on it, she, how she first described it. She said, you know, when you're doing your fourth step and you're doing, you're doing your grudge list, Anybody that's ever pissed you off, this is your opportunity to write them down and write down exactly, exactly how they pissed you off. Well, that sounded really fun, right? And then we get the column, you know, <laughs> and uh, and this affected. Oh, I can tell you what this affected. But you know, when you get to the questions after the columns, you know, like you know, where did I play a part? Oh, that part wasn't so fun. That's where the real work came. But I do know this, is that when I did my fifth step, it took away some of, some of that aloneness that I felt. Because whatever I have in me that's standing in between me and you is also what's standing in between me and my higher power. So I have to be rid of it. Restless, irritable, discontent. It has to be gone. Um. And, you know, what I'm going to tell you about recently, well, recently, in the last last couple of years, before, a year before COVID, I had to make a, a, an amend. It was the most recent amend that I have made that, that was, you know, on my fourth and fifth step, got to make this amend. There was a guy that I'd worked with back in 2005. And we had kind of gone to war at work, you know, I, at this point. I was letting ego take over and I was marshalling the troops. We're going to take over the kitchen and tell, tell the, the head chef what a sorry ass son of a bitch this new chef is. And, and this guy went and ratted me out. So I didn't like this guy because he was a rat. You know, he was a rat and then rats should be dealt with. And so, you know, I don't remember what I did, but I'm sure it wasn't anything that a sane sober person would have done. Even though I hadn't taken a drink, just because I'm not drinking doesn't mean I'm not, not thinking drunk. 
doesn't mean I'm not acting drunk. I'm just not drinking. But I made my amend to him because he and I were going to be on the same shift again. And when I saw him, that and you know, this is how I know when I need to make that amend. God tells me. My God tells me. Because there's a feeling that comes on that, Norma, you, ha you have to get this done. You need to do this now. And I went to him. I stopped him. I said, hey, can, can I speak to you for a minute? And for him, it was no big deal. Me, I'm like, oh, I want to break down the tears, you know. But for him, it was no big deal. But I, that, that wave of relief washed over me. That was one less thing that was between me and God. Because my amends helped me remove the obstacles. When I'm doing my, my 10th step, continue to take personal inventory and when we're wrong, promptly admit it. I'm really big about that when we're wrong part, promptly admit it. Because if I'm waiting until the end of the day to figure out when I'm wrong, perhaps I need to reset myself a little bit. Because if you and I get into an argument and I go to bed knowing I'm wrong, I'm not going to sleep very well. I can't. It's on my mind. It's on my heart. I was taught very early on, I got to get things off my heart. So I try to make those amends, amends as promptly as I can. So during, um, during COVID lockdown, during the beginning of COVID lockdown, uh, I got married. And two months after my marriage, I lost my brother, COVID. Um, I, I had to call my sister-in-law, my, like my sister-in-law, she's my sister. I had to call my sister and my brother-in-law to go over and check on my brother. Because I wasn't in the same town, and they and he'd already called an ambulance for himself, which was good. Um, but the last last week he was in the hospital, he was called my he texted my sister and told her to come get him. And my sister, now there's eleven months between the two of them. Now remember, I'm the same sister that couldn't be counted on for anything when her nephew when her son died. She called me. She told me about. It. She says, "Norma, I don't know what to do with this." I said, "So you don't have to do anything at all. I'll take care of this." No one's going to go get him. I'll talk to mom. Don't worry about this. I will take care of this. And I got a hold of my brother who was doing a whisper yell thing at me about, you know, that he needed to go home. And I told him, I'm sorry, you can't go home. You'll never make it out of the lobby. No one's coming to get you. We love you, but you have to stay there. And, you know, when he died, I'm going to tell you this. Alcoholics Anonymous was there for me. People in these meetings were there for me. This room and in rooms like this, they were there for me. When I've gone through the worst and the best parts of my life, I've, I've had Alcoholics Anonymous right there. I mean, when I was, when I came out, when I was two and a half years sober, I, I had a sponsor one time and she told me that, you know, Norma, don't, I, we can't talk, don't, don't talk to me about this. I thought she said, don't talk to me at all. So I thought I got rejected just like I did with my mom. But it turns out a, a year and a half later, we're working at the same damn treatment center and we're hugging. So that's not what she meant. I just can't hear right because my, my perception is sometimes clouded by me. Because my perception sometimes thinks that I'm still the only person in the world. So I'm grateful because you know what? When she told me that and I took it the wrong way, what I did was what I did when I first got sober. I was going to meetings morning, morning noon, and night. Many times I get to a meeting, I was at a meeting. Because I knew one thing. I knew I could not take a drink. Now, was I, was I mad? Well, when people would talk about their war stories when I go to the gay meetings, I was really pissed off because I didn't get to do any of that crap. If I do that crap now, I'm going to have to do amends for it. I know better. You know? 
But see, I always forgot that part. They'd have to go do the amends for that crap they did. It's very important. I've been on 12-step calls. I don't, we don't seem to do a whole lot of 12-step calls the way we used to anymore, but I've been on 12-step calls. And there's nothing like looking at another alcoholic and saying, you know, and it was uh, the first 12-step call I went on with somebody that I'd been going to meetings with that she had been sober. She was a little older than me and she'd been sober a couple of years more than me, but she didn't stay sober and looking at her and just sharing, you know, what it was like for me. Because I'm going to tell you, this pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization that I felt as an alcoholic, I, I'm not one of these alcoholics that say, oh, you know, if I drink again, you know, I can get sober again. Because I've always thought like this, you know, if I go out and get drunk, I don't know if I have a, another sober enough in me. And I'm not one of those drunk that's uh, thinking I'm going to go out there and die. I think I'm going to have to go out there and live through it. And I damn sure don't want that. Pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And now today, instead of talking about stuff like that, and being a, the, a kid that used to write poetry, it was like, I, um, I watch as, as the waves carelessly molest the shoreline, thinking of no one, how many wayward souls lost like me. I don't write like that anymore because I don't feel that alone anymore. I know that I'm in the hands. I know... I know that my higher power walks beside me. Now, I, 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 I don't know why things happen. That's not up to me to decide why things happen. But I've always thought that the question is not why. One of the things I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, the question is not why, the question is how. It's not why did this happen, it's how can this be overcome? How can I change? How can I get through this? What do I need to do? What are the actions I need to take? And I do know that if I don't deal with my feelings, my feelings will deal with me. And I do want to share with you a few things that I was told when I first got sober, because they're, they're still true for me today. If I'm talking to somebody that seems to want to get into gossip or something that is a family member, and um, I use this while my mom, because she's like the try to get fights in between all of the kids. Oh, really? That's nice. That's all I was allowed to say to her. Oh, really? That's nice. And that's gone a long way for me getting out of that situation. I, I left that drama behind. And I used to get really mad when people would say things and I'd take it personally. So um, I had a sponsor and this is what she uh, would always say that I had, this is what I had to think then. You're right, I accept you, I accept it. You're wrong, I forgive you. And then just move on. Because they taught me that I, it's not okay for me to hold on to those those thoughts, those, those negative, Thoughts that want to take me over. It's not a, see, I am not responsible for the first crazy thought that comes ripping and roaring through my alcoholic brain. I am responsible for the entertaining of that thought. I am responsible for what I do with that thought. I have to, I, I, and I'm going to tell you, I don't have the power to stop those thoughts either. Because I, I share this sometimes. My mom and one of her, um, one of the times that she tried to kill herself, she's had to go to therapy. She had a therapist that gave her the tell her, oh, just imagine seeing this red stop sign flick up when those thoughts come through. You know, I flicked up that red sign and I boom right through that stop sign every time in my mind. I have to have a power greater than myself to help me stop that thought, to help me do something positive with that thought. I don't have the power on my own. It says it over and over in the book, lack of power. That was our dilemma. 
Now, there is one thing that I believe, and I believe this all my heart, is that the elevator is still broken. I have to take the step. I have to. There's just no other way about it. I have to have a sponsor. I have to talk to my sponsor, even when she pisses me off. Especially when she pisses me off. Um, right now, I'm in a situation where my, my parents' house burned down last year. My sister got diagnosed with stage four cancer, which we found out this year. Now she's cancer-free, thank God. I mean, I don't know how that happened, but she's cancer-free. But my mom and, um, also had a, a triple bypass. And every few months we get the, um, this is the end call. And we run up to Jacksonville and it's not the end. And then my father is uh, 11 years older than her and he has surgery. And then he's crazy. He wants to go to the Philippines again. And you know what? Those are my parents. And this is how I have to handle this. My father can do whatever he wants to do with his life because it's his life. It's not my life. If he chooses, like my, 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 my brother is like really getting wrapped around the axle because my father's kind of finally made a plain to my brother and my sister that we are not really his family. His family's in the Philippines. But it's kind of like a joke. I was letting on that secret a long time ago. You know? so, so if he wants to go back and be with those people in the Philippines, that's fine. That's up to him. Got nothing to do with me. And my mother, I, I run up there because my sister needs support. So. I want to share this because I think this is important. Again, the sister who couldn't rely on me for anything, right, when I was drinking. Past Sunday, um, we went up there Tuesday because it's supposed to be the end, and we know it's not the end, so we came back down. So I, I went I went up there um, on my own. Oh, yeah, and then I drove back down, and then my sister called and said, Norma, they're moving her. Um, John wants to know if you're coming in tonight or tomorrow. Well, that's kind of code for, hey, I need you up here. So I heard the code. And I said, I told my wife, I said, I, I have to go back up because my sister needs me. And I can do that right now because I'm out on um, short-term disability for a recent surgery that I've had. And it was so nice being able to do that for my sister and to be able to be there. Because my sister, my mom told my sister something that she's never heard before. None of us have ever heard. My mom said that she didn't want to die. Now, this is a woman who's, we spent, she spent our, our entire lives trying to kill herself. So for her to say that's kind of weird. So I told Sue, I said, you know, let me see her and then I'll tell you what's really going on. <laughs> and when I saw her, I said, all it is is mom doesn't want to die in the hospital. That's all this is. She doesn't want to die in the hospital. And she's unfortunately, um, it took them from August of last year until now to find out that she had a kidney stone and that's been, that's been making her sick. So now she's kind of lost mobility of her legs. So, but I know no matter what happens, I, I can be there for my sister and my brother. I can be there for them because I have this program of Alcoholics Anonymous that has taught me how to behave because see, you guys raised me. I came in at 18 years old with an attitude stomping up the steps and you guys have raised me. You guys have taught me that I, I can't behave that it's not okay. My first sponsor used to, she used to, God, she used to say this to me all the time. I hated it. I would be complaining about people. And she said, yeah, Norma, who's got the program? What is that supposed to mean? Well, you have to act like somebody with a program. Well, well, but they have a program too. That's not your problem. You have to act like somebody who has a program. I used to hate that. But you know, it's true. I have to act like somebody who's got a program because I have to use my program. I have to learn to live my program. And I was told early on too that 
the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous are not where I come in to get the meeting. I'm not, I'm not coming to the meetings to, 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 I'm coming to report back to you what it was like trying to implement the program of Alcoholics Anonymous the other 23 hours of my life. That's what I was told. Because that's what I bring to you is that I, this is how my life has happened because of you guys. Whether you deem it a success or failure is not my, it's none of my business. For me, I'm happy with my life. I love my life. I, you know, now that I've had the surgery, <laughs> I can go fishing again. Um, you know, I can, I can play video games. I can go visit family. I can go visit with and kids. It's often said kids are my kryptonite, but because of this program, I can actually hold a baby again. I was 10 years sober before I was able to hold a baby again because I used to play with my nephew that passed away every morning before I went to work. But because of this program, I can be around babies again. And because of this program, my niece, her children, my nephew, his children have never seen me drink. That's a gift. That's a gift. Because of this program, I can be the kind of sister that I, I want to be. I can be the kind of daughter that I want to be because of this program. I can be me and I'm okay being me. I don't feel alone. I don't feel like I'm, I need to hide away in a closet and hope that nobody looks at me. I'm still not really good at getting awards. I'm still not really good about being called out. You know, people want to clap for me and I, I, still feels kind of weird. I'm, I, I don't know if I'll ever be okay with that. But what I do know is that in my in my house, when I'm out in public with people, I'm not ashamed of who I am. I feel good about it. I don't feel that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization anymore. I feel happy, joyous, and free. I've been given a life that's a life worth living. And what else is there than that? If my life is not worth living, then why am I here? It's, and the only reason my life is worth living is because of Alcoholics Anonymous and the love and service that I have been taught. I see God through you. I find God through you. And my God today is good early direction because I definitely need that in my life. Thank you so much for letting me share. No, Norma, thank you for sharing with us your experience, strength, and hope and what it's like to live happy, joyous, and free. Thanks for listening to our speaker series edition on Alcoholics Anonymous Speakers. We hope you join us again on our regular show, Two Sober Chicks.